Let's open our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. As you're doing that, I want to say good morning to our folks watching from the internet. And uh, if, whether you're here in the room or watching at home today, I'm glad that we're going to get to look at God's Word together. Philippians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 12 to 17. Why don't we stand together as we look and listen to God's Word. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Attained, excuse me. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, I'm privileged to be able to speak to you this morning from this text. Uh, this was a text that God laid on my heart uh, a number of weeks ago, even before I think I even knew that the church was in the Philippians series. God put this on my heart uh, for this first message, and here we are. I've entitled this message this morning, Press On, Press On. Good, good word for us. Now, it can be tricky to know how to live the Christian life. You kind of go, yep, it can be tricky. And the question that we want to look at today, if we can't earn our salvation by our works, should we work at all? And if we can't lose our salvation, have we already arrived and attained at the state of Christian perfection? So those are two questions that our text today will address. Now, as you think about chapter 3, if you have been here for a while, if you've been tracking with the church and its teaching, chapter 3 of Philippians is Paul's testimony, his past, his present, and his future testimony. It's his autobiography spiritually, and I love to hear Paul's testimony. You see it in Acts chapter 9, and he repeats it in a number of other places in the scripture. Boy, just as an aside, it's wonderful when you get to share your story what God did to save you and, and how he was working in your life. And we get to, to think about that with Paul today. Paul begins with his past accomplishments in the first section, the first 11 verses. He'll end in verses 17 to 21 with his, his future hope and the future glory that awaits. And our verses today talk about his present pursuit, his present walk with the Lord. By way of review, if you weren't here, Blair Hansen preached from the early part in verses 1 to 11, saying that knowing Christ leaves no room for confidence in human achievement. Knowing Christ is the most valuable treasure that we could ever know or go after, better than any other thing out there in the world. Paul says everything else compared to knowing Christ is garbage. It's refuse. Knowing Christ means that we have the power to do what he calls us to do, which is amazing. Even, as he said, it might lead some of us to lay down our lives. Then Pastor Adam preached on verses 17 to 21, Paul's future, which 
His testimony of the future is our future. It wasn't just Paul's little verses in 17 to 21. As he was telling that story, that's our story. That's your future. That's your hope. That's where we're all going. And the future is, for him and for us, is that we're going to be resurrected from the dead. We're going to be made like Jesus. And because we share with Paul in the promise of physical resurrection, he calls on us then to come to these verses and to imitate him in what led him to that moment as he was pursuing Christ in the present. So Paul is saying to us in these verses, here's how to live now. And why is that important? Well, this is helpful. This is needful for us because tomorrow morning, uh, we get to live this out. We get to walk this out this week in 2020. We get to say, Lord, how do you want me to live? God, what are, what are your plans and priorities and purposes for me? So I have two points today that I want to share with you from this text. And then, after talking about those things, we're going to apply them. In this text, Paul is trying to show us how to live the Christian life. That's our big theme. He's trying to show us how to live the Christian life. Here's the two things I want to say today. He warns us, first of all, how not to live the Christian life. But then he says, here's how to live the Christian life. Those two things. Here's the first point, how not to live the Christian life. Well, the first thing I want to say is that in order to pursue Christ today, Paul tells us that you have to let go of the past. Here's what he says in 3.12. Look with me. Brothers, he said, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Now, we would agree that looking back in lots of ways is great. We did it today. Today is the kind of day that filled with thanksgiving, we look back and we say, wow, God, you've been so good to us. There are times in the Bible that we are told to look back and to remember the the goodness of the Lord, to remember God's faithfulness and to give him thanks. The Bible tells us that we are to remember Jesus, his death, and it reminds us as we come to the Lord's table that he's coming again. Those are good things. Those are good reasons to look back and to not forget the past. And in, in these ways, looking back actually fuels us forward, and we sure need that. We look back at these, these hills, these mountains, where God has done these great things in our lives, where we had these victories and the, these great provisions, and that encourages us when we're discouraged to keep going. That's great. But there are also times that the Bible says that we should forget about the past, and this text is one of them. So why, why would that be? Why, why are there things that help us to move forward, and why are there things that we're supposed to forget that are hindrances and impede us in our forward progress? Well, let's, let's ask ourselves a question. What, is it, what does it mean, what does Paul mean when he says forget, forgetting what lies behind? Well, forgetting what lies behind does not mean that it's erased, like a, a backspace on your computer keyboard or like a, an Etch-a-Sketch. Did you have an Etch-a-Sketches when you grew up? Remember those things? They were great. I don't think I ever had a real one. I think I had a dollar store version that was small and I think broke really fast. But you shake it, you shake it enough, and it's gone. It's, it hadn't existed in the sense. But Paul's saying forgetting is not like that. It's not erasing it. It's not pretending it didn't exist. Forgetting in this sense, in the biblical sense of what Paul is trying to say to us, is not allowing it to influence your present, your present outlook or your present conduct. It's somehow just separating yourself from that influence that's negative so that you can move on. In how not to live the Christian life, Paul is telling us there's two things that we need to address to put behind us. He says, there's two things I want you to forget about. Here's the first one. He says, first, don't be tricked by legalism. Don't be tricked by legalism. Now, if you're here, you remember what the first part of this chapter was about. Now, the Apostle Paul was the president of works righteousness. He was the prime minister of all legalists. He was, he was the guy. He was at the top of the heap. 
And if anyone could say that they had attained a right standing with God through their own efforts, it was the Apostle Paul. It's pretty impressive, isn't it? We'd look at his life and we would be very impressed. This guy was impeccable. But he didn't like that so much, and we're going to find out about that. In verse 2, Paul warned the church about those kind of people, about the kind of person that he was. And he warns the church about these people who insisted that in order to earn their standing with God, you had to keep the rules. You have to be a rule keeper. If you're a good rule keeper, then you're good with God. Look at verse 2. He says, look out. In fact, he says it three times. Like he's, he's really wanting to push this home. He wants to press this on them. Look out for the dogs. It's not a very nice thing to say. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These were these works righteousness legalistic people who thought they could achieve a good standing before God. And for Paul, it was his pride and joy. It was his everything. It was the way he used to live. It was how he thought. It was how he lived. It was the thing that consumed him. But now, it was trash. It was garbage. It was excrement. He says, look out. Don't do that. And if we could say there was a math formula for them, how to live the Christian life, it was this. Christ plus works, bracket, there's a lot that I need to do, bracket, is salvation. That's a wrong way of thinking. Paul says, forget about that. He said, that's a wrong way of thinking. You can't work hard in order to be acceptable to God. That way of thinking says, if I'm good enough, God will love me. Most of us have probably thought about that. If I'm good enough, God will love me, but we're held back by this way of thinking. This is not the gospel, and this produces in us some some bad stuff, a lot of bad stuff, in fact. Here's three things that I thought of. It produces, first of all, pride. If If you think you're doing well in this, in legalism, you you just feel real good about yourself. You, you say, look how well I'm doing. I'm good. I'm way better than I used to be, and I'm way better than that person over there. It produces pride. It produces self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is just like thinking, hey, I am a shining star on God's team. God is lucky to have me as a Christian. God is so blessed to have me. Third, it produces these feelings of guilt and fear, which really just says, you know, have I done enough? Am I good enough? Have I tried hard enough? So this is works righteousness, and this is the rotten fruit that grows on that tree. And Paul has said, he says, forget about it. Put it behind. I've renounced this in Philippian church, South Shore church. We put this behind us. The gospel, what we love and what we say yes to, is the fact that we bring nothing to God We bring nothing to God. We bring nothing to earn the fact that we will make it to heaven. It's not about working hard. It's not about proving to God that you're good enough because none of us is going to make it to heaven in our own strength, in our own steam, our own goodness. Let's say amen to that. Paul says, forget about that stuff. He says, change your way of thinking because it's the wrong approach to live the Christian life. If you're trying to live like that, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand the finished work of Christ. Jesus said on the cross, his final words, what did he say? It is finished. It's paid for. That's the good news of the gospel. The gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith, through the work of Jesus Christ, apart from any works that we can do. Ooh, that's freeing. And Paul says to us today, finding Christ and pursuing Christ and living now in the present means that we will renounce this legalism 
and this self-righteousness, and we're gonna trust Jesus fully. We're gonna embrace Jesus fully. We're gonna trust in him and the work that he's done on our behalf. So Paul says, church, don't be tricked. Don't fall back. Don't fall again into this trap of pride and fear. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is this. Don't be tricked by perfectionism. In a sense, these are kind of opposite sides. These are two different ditches. We go into one ditch, or if we're not in that ditch, we go into the other ditch. So as Paul's telling the Philippian church about his own um, journey in Christ, a journey that God began, we see that in 1.6, he who began a good work, God's carrying on to completion, God's continuing it in the present. And if you think about Paul, he's an apostle, he's a great apostle. He's this mega theologian, he's a thinker like no thinker, he's a gifted preacher, he's a discipler, he's a guy that perseveres being beaten and beat up and left for dead and, and you know, you just read his, his scars and his wounds that he suffered for Christ. And Paul said, in spite of all that, brothers and sisters, I haven't arrived, I haven't made it, I'm not complete yet. And Paul tells us here in verses 12 and 13, he, he actually tells us twice, there's this double denial, just because he needs to tell the, the church, he, just, he says, look, I am not perfect. And it seems that there are people in the church that thought they could reach perfection in this life. They could become perfect. Look with me at verse 12. He denies it twice. He says, not that I have already obtained this, this perfection, this resurrection, this perfect life, or I'm already perfect. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He he says it again in case they didn't hear it the first time. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. Paul said, listen, you might think great things about me, thank God for the grace in my life, but I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived. I'm not like Jesus. And Paul is referring back when he thinks about the it and the this that he's trying to pursue that he hasn't attained yet. He's looking back to verse 11. This is the perfection that's only going to be his when he's resurrected. 1 John 3 really is the kind of the Johannine version of this Pauline text which says, when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. There's a day coming, brothers and sisters, that that we're gonna be like him. But it's only when Jesus raises us from the dead are we gonna enjoy that perfect perfection that's promised to us. So Paul is trying to correct this false understanding, this false teaching in the church. The legalists had a formula, and these guys had a different formula. Here's their formula for the Christian life. It was this. Christ equals salvation, bracket, there's nothing left for me to do. It's all good. Boom. Done. This way of thinking goes like this. Jesus has done it all. I'm perfect already. There's nothing left for me to do that pertains to my Christian maturity. I'm good. This is a life, if you just kind of play that out, you think about that, well, what might that mean in someone's life? What would that mean if I think like that, if I live like that? Well, it means this, that it's a, it's a life without urgency. It's a a lukewarm faith. It's a lukewarm spiritual life. It's a failure to pursue or to press on. Now, I'm absolutely sure that there's nobody here today who would say, hey, Jody, I have arrived. I'm good. There's nothing I need to do that I haven't already done. Um, There's nothing left for me to strive after. I don't think there's anybody here who thinks they're perfect. We would all readily admit our imperfections. I have a big list. I think we all have our big lists. So, If false assurance of our perfection isn't our thing, what is the thing? What's our thing like this in our day? What's our parallel? 
Well, I believe it's the sense that we can think that I'm all good. I could maybe put this in, an, in an, another way. I could call it the sinner's prayer syndrome. The sinner's prayer syndrome. What do you think that means? Well, it's like this. You know, I said the sinner's prayer with my mom when I was four years old. Boom, done. It's good. I'm all done. Finished. Or maybe it's kind of like this. It's the, uh, I raised my hand at camp righteousness, you know. Uh, I had a little talk with my counselor after the campfire. I was even baptized that summer. Boom, I'm good. I'm on my way to heaven. Jesus, take me home. If that's all there is to your faith, there's a problem. This is a false assurance that tricks us into thinking there's nothing left for us to do, just to sit back and coast and live the good life and make our way to heaven. The first wrong way of thinking is legalism. Leads us to not trust Christ's self or all sufficiency. The second way, the second wrong way of thinking, which is perfectionism, treats grace with contempt. So this false understanding of the Christian life produces some rotten fruit in our lives too. Here's three things that I thought of. The first thing is laziness. Laziness. Laziness, it says, I'm going to get around to it sometime. Or complacency. I'm good. Status quo, right? Just think about that frog in the kettle syndrome. Just like we're lulled into drifting into complacency. I'm good. Or distraction. Distraction. Growing in Christ is not a priority in my life. There are too many other things that I'm interested in. The question is, brothers and sisters, if you think like this and you live like this, are you actually alive spiritually? Does the fruit of your life indicate that you have a vital, ongoing relationship with Jesus? You see, the devil wants you to be complacent. The devil wants to extinguish your fire and your passion for God. But let me tell you this, nobody coasts to spiritual maturity. So let's ask ourselves this question today. Is there a hunger in my spiritual walk? Do I long for more of Jesus? I hope today that you can say a resounding yes to both of those things. Well, the good news is that one day I am going to become the perfect me that God intended. I envision having more hair, and I envision being able to play the piano far better than I do right now. Lots of things we hope for in heaven. I'm going to be the perfect me, and you're going to be the perfect you. We're going to be the perfect us. But that day is not yet here, and it's not now. It's still ahead. But it's our future in Christ. So in summary, here's how not to live the Christian life. Don't go into the ditch of legalism that says you have to work really hard, and don't go into the ditch of perfectionism that says there's nothing left for you to do. These two ways of thinking are going to impede your maturity towards Christ. I want you to remember, Paul says, the good things that God has done, and I want you to remember where he's brought you from, but you got to put this stuff behind you. Forget legalism. Forget this. Leave it to Jesus. Laissez-faire perfectionism. These are the ditches. This is what we're supposed to leave behind. This is how not to live the Christian life. But now Paul goes on in the second way to tell us how to live the Christian life, and he says this. He says, watch me. Get your eyes on me. Watch me. Paul wants us to see how to live the Christian life. 
If anyone could say they'd arrived or attained a level of faith or spiritual intimacy with God, it was Paul. But he wasn't satisfied, and he was determined that he was going to make every effort to keep pressing on towards Christian maturity. I found this little-known hymn as I was uh, writing this message. I've never heard it before, but I like the words, and I think it would have been on Paul's Spotify playlist. Written in 1953, the hymn writer wrote this. He says this. He says, Press on to what's before us, forgetting all the past. The light of heaven is so glorious, eternally shall last. And I would say that for most of us, we need a little bit more of that, don't we? We need a little bit brighter view of heaven. Paul had that. He sang, join me. On the road to forever, on the path to the pursuit of Christ, he told us how not to live, but now he's going to show us how. And the one thing that I want to say is that Paul is living life backwards. You've heard that phrase before, haven't you? To borrow words from this book that many of you have read over the summer, I want to quote David Gibson. I love what he said. He said, I am convinced that only a proper perspective on eternity provides the true perspective on life. Isn't that good? A proper perspective on eternity provides the true perspective on life. There's, there's a lot of perspectives you can have on life. You're going to leave in a few minutes and you're going to go out the doors and there's a lot of people living for a lot of things. There's a lot of people with a lot of perspective on what this life is all about, what it's all about, where you should throw your energy, what you should pursue, what you should be going hard after. But it's only this perspective on eternity that tells us what life is all about. And brothers and sisters, I want to tell you that it's our future reality that directs our present pursuits. You're not going to know how to live now if you haven't seen then. You're not going to know what to do tomorrow morning if your eyes aren't at the same time on eternity. In the Bible, this process of growth and change and maturity, which I hope we're all on, the Bible calls that sanctification. It was fueled in the Bible times by this view of the future that they had. Right? You read Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. It was saying these people hadn't received it yet. They were looking forward to what was coming. But we get so fixed on the here and now. We are to be a future-oriented people, but it's not easy. Think about that in your own life. I'm thinking it's not easy. It's easy to lose sight of the future that awaits us. I think of a story in my own life. Um, I remember as a young pastor, Alex was with me at that moment. I attended a deeply impactful funeral. Now, funerals are impactful always. This one was particularly impactful, and maybe I'll tell you about it sometime. But it shook me with the harsh reality of death. And in spite of how hard it was, I wanted to live in that moment and let that moment continue to shape my thinking and just do something in me that would cause me to, to wake up and sober up to the realities of life and death. That was my hope and that was my plan, but guess what? Monday came around. And it didn't take long for the sense of the sober reality of life and death to dissipate and to fade as I quickly returned to life as usual, as if forgetting that I had just stared into the face of eternity. Maybe you can relate. It's hard. It's hard. We're consumed with the here and now. We're consumed with going to work, 
paying the bills, doing our schoolwork, taking care of the kids, watching our favorite teams. And in the midst of these duties and these distractions, Paul says, I want to remind you that you need God's point of view in order to get recalibrated. I don't know about you, but I need that today. Do you feel like you need some recalibration on the here and now? I do. In the midst of the demands and the temptations of life, praise God, the word of God is for us. This lens, in order for us to value and interpret and know true meaning and purpose in life. It enables us to think our way clear so that what? So that we can live clear, so that we can live purposeful and focused the way that God wants us to live. And in these verses, Paul wants us to catch what caught him and to imitate his example. It's as if Paul is running full stride, full sweat intensity, and he looks over at you and he looks over at me, kind of huffing and puffing, and he says, join me. Come on. Join me. And we hear him. We say, all right, let's do it. Verse, chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says the same thing. He said, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. He said, come on, church. You've watched it in me. You've heard it in me. You've seen it in me. Practice these things. Let's do it together, and the God of peace will be with you. I don't know if any of you loved hockey as, as little kids. I, uh, I think I started to play hockey when I was seven years old. There was a, a rink down just from my house in a park. Put on my skates. I could walk there in the snow in the 1970s. Lots of snow. It was an outdoor hockey league. It was so cold in Ottawa in the 70s that they had an indoor and an ho- outdoor hockey league. And uh, so you're eight years old and you have a dream. What's your dream? Your dream as an eight-year-old is to play in the NHL. So you spend... A lot of time thinking about it. You get a net for Christmas. You get your, your favorite stick and you wrap it up and put tape on it. You spend a lot of time in the driveway shooting pucks at the net. A lot of them miss the net. A lot of them hit the garage door and leave these big dents. You watch a lot of hockey. You read a lot of stats. You follow your favorite players because hockey is your passion. And because it's your passion and the NHL is your goal, it shapes you. It shapes how you think. It shapes what you do. It's what you dream about. Paul had a passion. Paul's all-consuming future vision led him to an all-consuming present pursuit. Look at the text again, verse 13, chapter 3. Listen to his words. Listen to his heartbeat. I love this. 3.13. He says, what's my life about? What's my motto? What's my mission statement? He says this, one thing I do, but one thing I do. In fact, those five words, that's actually not quite what's in the Greek. In the original language, those five words boil down to two. One thing, one thing. Paul says, look at me. He says, you want to know what I'm about? One thing. I used to be about that one thing, but not anymore. I'm about this one thing. And there's a lot of people who are living outside these walls for many things. And we used to live for many things. And we used to have many things that we dreamed about that energized us, that we ran after, whether it was our careers, our house, or our vacations, or our friendships, or our sports, or whatever it was. There was a lot of things we lived for. But now, Paul says, church, join me. I've got a motto for you. It's one thing. It's going to clear the fog. It's going to clear the confusion. It's going to clear the ambiguity in your life and it's going to give your life purpose and meaning 
It's going to enable you to direct all your energies and all your passions into this one thing that's going to matter, that's going to last forever. It's beautiful. It's liberating. It's a gift from God. New believer in Christ, what's your life about? Young person, what are you living for? Young professional business person busy at your office? Stay-at-home mom? Let me ask you the question today. What's your one thing? What's your motto for life? What is that one thing that's shaping your thoughts and your actions? Paul says, join me. I'm compelled by the greatness of the prize because Paul's seen it. It's Jesus. Paul says, join me. Join me in this pursuit. It's, it's about the resurrection. It's about eternity. It's about the Jesus that I'm going to see and become like and be with forever. That one thing then and there is fueling the one thing now and here in my life. This is what matters. This is the one thing. If the wrong way to approach your maturity in Christ focuses on what's in the past, the right way focuses on what's in the future. So what does it mean for us to take hold of the present, in the present, what's awaiting for us in the future? Well, Paul loved to tell his testimony. He loved to share the story. And he talks about that in verse 12. He says this, but I press on to make it my own. And he refers back to that moment on the road to Damascus when he was stopped in his tracks, when his life was forever changed. Can you imagine? The guy who was zealous, the most zealous persecutor of the church, you see that in 3.6. He says he persecuted the church with zeal. He was like this, this ravaging animal, this wild dog, trying to rip people apart who claimed the name of Christ and who followed Jesus Christ. He wanted to destroy them. He said, with that same kind of intensity, is now the zeal that I'm living for Christ. Because, if you look at verse 12, he says, because Christ Jesus made me his own. In other words, Paul said, I used to be seized, I used to be uh, running after this thing that was consuming me, but Christ took a hold of my life. He seized me. He grabbed a hold of my life, and now I'm grabbing a hold of him. And with a greater intensity even than the zeal I used to persecute the church and hate Christ is, is now a greater zeal because I'm running in his way. Jesus took a hold of my life, and now I'm not letting him go. I'm running full out for the finish line. And what was Paul doing? The verb, as you look at these verbs in this, in this text that we're looking at, they're intense verbs. They're they're all-out verbs. He says this in verse 12. What's, what's he about? He says, I'm pressing on. Look at verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. I press on. I'm straining. I'm moving forward. And, and you're probably thinking, this is like a running thing, right? Absolutely. This is a running thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul uses this metaphor. And in 2.6, he says, I'm holding fast to the word of life. So to the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Paul says it again in verse um, 13, or 14. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Maybe you haven't thought like this, or maybe you do, but I want you to think about this. The Christian life is a race. It's a race that's going to take everything you've got. And I remember when I turned 50, for some strange and crazy reason, well, actually I know why it was, because I, I bought a bicycle, I decided that I was going to do this thing called a triathlon. And pretty much anybody can ride a bike. 
and I was decently okay at swimming, but I was horrible at running. And this Olympic triathlon that I did at Wasaga Beach pushed me to the, the very limits that I even thought possible for this aging body. And there I was, running this 10K at the end of this one and a half K swim and this 40K bike ride. There I was, gasping for air, finishing this 10K the last 150 meters with my beautiful bride, cheering me on, my eyes barely able to focus because I was completely exhausted, dehydrated, but I knew there was a finish line and I could see it. And there was this din of voices cheering people as they were about to collapse and to cut through the tape and cross the finish line. And why was I doing it? I don't know why I was doing it. <laughs> Maybe because there was this plastic little metal that they were gonna put around my neck. Maybe it was because there was this red t-shirt that I was gonna get that I still wear to remind myself of that moment. I crossed the finish line in two hours and 58 minutes. Relatively thankful that A, I uh, didn't die. Um, very grateful that I was able to finish the race in that time and thankful for the, the team that was cheering me on. Jordan, I, you were there as well, weren't I think you were there, yeah. There's a backstory I'll <laughs> tell you about that as I went to the hospital afterwards, but that's for another day. <laughs> True story. Well, we run this race because we have the goal in mind. And we run this race and we work hard. And think back to verse 12 and 13. Paul says this, my beloved, just loving the church, he says this, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. This is for us today. Work out your own salvation for fear and trembling. The legalists work hard because they thought by it they could earn their salvation. But in Christ, we work hard. But we don't work hard because we're trying to get saved. We work hard because we are saved. Why do we work hard with this all-out pursuit? It's because it's the kind of work that a saved person does. We press on because we are already citizens of heaven. Adam talked about that in 320. We're already citizens of heaven. Our names are already written in the book of life. Our eternity is already secure. But if that's true of us, we work hard and we strive with all of the strength that God gives us. It's our determination with dependency on the grace of God because we can't do anything apart from him. As we strive, he is at work in us in a wonderful way. I heard John Piper tell this story of a guy who had this I'm going for it attitude. It was in 1989. It was the final stage of the Tour de France. American rider Greg LeMond, after a 2,000 mile journey, was facing the last 20 miles in the last leg of the Tour de France. The problem was he was 50 seconds behind the French leader whose name was Laurent Fignon. 2,000-mile race came down to this one 20-mile stretch, but he was 50 seconds behind the leader. And if you know anything about racing and the, the tight timelines and the high level of competition, nobody makes up 50 seconds in 20 miles. But something happened in Greg LeMond's mind and heart that sparked him, like booster cables on his heart again, jumping him. And he said that day to his teammates and to his crew, he said this, I don't want any radi radio connection in my head. Nothing at all. I don't want you to tell me how close I am to him or anything. He said this, he says, I'm going to ride as fast as I can. So there's no point in having an earbud in my ear since I'm going flat out. 
What happened? Well, he beat Fignon by eight seconds. He won the 2,000-mile race by eight seconds in 1989. It's like, I'm taking this out. I'm going for it. Can you imagine? Full out, flat out, 20 miles, eight seconds. He did it. He crossed the finish line. He won with the goal in sight. One thing I do, this is how we live the Christian life. So, Sushar, how are we supposed to press on in our maturity towards Christ? Paul tells us in verses 15 to 17, we're going to apply this as we finish. Look at the text with me. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Here's six, thing, six things that I see in these verses by way of application. Number one, we mature in the Christian life as we first think like the mature. See that in verse 15. Let your future faith drive your present pursuit. That's the mature way of thinking. If you're mature, think like the mature. Second thing is this, press on together. The beauty of being in Christian community. We need each other. Be in community, stay in community, grow in community, spur each other on in community, press on together. He uses the word us. He's saying, brothers and sisters, we're in this together. I need you, you need me. We need each other. Don't do it alone. Third thing, seek greater maturity. Seek greater maturity. We're not content. We're thankful, yes. Thankful for what God has brought us. Thankful for what God has done. Thankful for these eight years. But we're not content. There's more for us. We seek greater maturity. We seek greater depth. God has more for us. Number four, stay teachable. Stay teachable. Let's all humbly say that we haven't arrived. Let's be teachable. Let's listen to what God would say to us. Number five, stand firm. Don't be distracted. Don't let Satan put your fire out. Don't shrink back. Don't slip back. Don't go back. Don't be distracted from your all-consuming pursuit. Be like the Apostle Paul. And finally, number six, imitate godly examples. Verse 17a says this, join in imitating me. Who are your examples of faith? Who are your heroes of faith? We have lots. There's Jesus, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He ran his race. He, he despised the shame of the cross, knowing what was coming, the joy. We have the Apostle Paul, whose life is normative for us. It's exemplary, but it's normative. He said, he said, hey, you know, I know I'm kind of in this super category. You know, he said, follow me. Imitate me. We have Paul. We have the Lord Jesus. We have Timothy. These men, Epaphroditus in chapter 2. Maybe for you it's a godly mentor. Maybe it's a grandparent. Maybe it's a person who led you to Christ. Whoever your spiritual hero is, whoever encourages you in your race, imitate these people and stay close. Brothers and sisters, we have a future faith and a present pursuit. And so we are going to press on to maturity in Christ. We have a race to run towards eternity. We have a Jesus to pursue, a Christ to pursue in all that God has for us. I want to praise God that there is so much grace at work in your lives and in my life and in this church, but there is more. There's more. There's more for us. The Lord has more for us. And so the upward call is ringing in our ears. He says, come higher. Come on, press on. Press on toward the goal. Press on toward this high calling. And we can see the finish line. 
And we know there's a goal. And we know who the prize is and what it is. It's Jesus and the resurrection that awaits us. All of our energy is focused on getting this prize. South Shore, one thing we do, we press on towards Christ. Let's go. Let's pray. Lord, how good you are that you love us and have saved us. Lord, we've heard your voice, we've seen your power, and we praise you for the eternity that is waiting for us. And Lord, a year, a month, a decade, 10, 20, 50 years from now, whenever it is that we see you, is going to happen very quickly. And Lord, how we wait, as the hymn writer says, O Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Lord, spur us on, call us forward by the power of your Spirit. Grip us, grab us, Lord. Help us to forget that which we need to forget. Help us to lay aside the things that hold us back and to run with endurance. Perseverance, the race that is before us, Jesus, you ahead of us. Lord, thank you for this church, for all that you've done. For these men and women who are here, these young people. God, call us forward to greater things, to greater intimacy and knowledge of you, to greater Christ-likeness. For the greater glory of your name, for the greater knowledge of Jesus, of people in Barry who don't know you yet. For eternity, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.